Part two, chapter seventeen of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Fern. Chapter seventeen. The Avalanche. The colonists were then at last approaching the more frequented latitudes of Bering Sea. There was no longer any danger that they would be drifted to the north and all they had to do was to watch the displacement of the island and to estimate the speed of its motion which would probably be very unequal on account of the obstacles in its path hobson most carefully noted every incident taking alternately solar and stellar altitudes and the next day april sixteenth after ascertaining the bearings he calculated that if its present speed were maintained victoria island would reach the arctic circle from which it was now separated at the most by four degrees of latitude towards the beginning of may it was probable that when the island reached the narrowest portion of the strait it would remain stationary until the thaw broke it up the boat would then be launched and the colonist would set sail for the american continent everything was ready for an immediate embarkation and the inhabitants of the island waited with greater patience and confidence than ever they felt poor things that the end of their trials was surely near at last and that nothing could prevent their landing on one side or the other of the strait in a few days this prospect cheered them up wonderfully and the gaiety natural to them all which they had lost in the terrible anxiety they had so long endured was restored the common meals were quite festal as there was no need for economizing the stores under present circumstances the influence of the spring became more and more sensibly felt and every one enjoyed the balmy air and breathed more freely than before during the next few days several excursions were made to the interior of the island and along the coast everywhere the furred animals etc still abounded for even now they could not cross to the continent the connection between it and the ice-field being broken and their continued presence was a fresh proof that the island was no longer stationary no change had taken place on the island at cape eskimo cape michael along the coast or on the wooded heights of the interior and the banks of the lagoon the large gulf which had opened near cape michael during the storm had closed in the winter and there was no other fissure on the surface of the soil during these excursions bands of wolves were seen scudding across parts of the island of all the animals these fierce carnivorous beasts were the only ones which the feeling of a common danger had not tamed kalumaha's preserver was seen several times this worthy bear paced to and fro on the deserted plains in melancholy mood pausing in his walks as the explorers passed and sometimes following them to the fort knowing well that he had nothing to fear from them on the twentieth april lieutenant hobson ascertained that the wandering island was still drifting to the south all that remained of the ice wall that is to say the southern portion of the icebergs followed it but as there were no benchmarks the changes of position could only be estimated by astronomical observations hobson took several soundings in different parts of the ground especially at the foot of cape bathurst and on the shores of the lagoon he was anxious to ascertain the thickness of the layer of ice supporting the earth and sand, and found that it had not increased during the winter, 
and that the general level of the island did not appear to have risen higher above that of the sea. The conclusion he drew from these facts was that no time should be lost in getting away from the fragile island, which would rapidly break up and dissolve in the warmer waters of the Pacific. About the 25th April, the bearing of the island was again changed. The whole ice field had moved round from east to west twelve points, so that Cape Bathurst pointed to the northwest. The remains of the ice wall now shut in the northern horizon, so that there could be no doubt that the ice field was moving freely in the strait, and that it nowhere touched any land. The fatal moment was approaching. Diurnal or nocturnal observations gave the exact position of the island, and consequently of the ice field. On the 30th of April, both were together drifting across Kutsubi Sound, a large triangular gulf running some distance inland on the American coast, and bounded on the south by Cape Prince of Wales, which might perhaps arrest the course of the island if it should deviate in the very least from the middle of the narrow pass. The weather was now pretty fine, and the column of mercury often marked fifty degrees Fahrenheit. The colonists had left off their winter garments some weeks before, and held themselves in constant readiness to leave the island. Thomas Black had already transported his instruments and books to the boat, which was waiting on the beach. A good many provisions had also been embarked, and some of the most valuable furs. On the 2nd of May, a very carefully taken observation showed that Victoria Island had a tendency to drift towards the east, and consequently to reach the American continent. This was fortunate, as they were now out of danger of being taken any further by the Kamchatka current, which, as is well known, runs along the coast of Asia. At last the tide was turning in favour of the colonists. "'I think our bad fortune is at last at an end,' observed Sergeant Long to Mrs. Barnett, "'and that our misfortunes are really over. I don't suppose there are any more dangers to be feared now.' "'I quite agree with you,' replied Mrs. Barnett, "'and it is very fortunate that we have to give up our journey across the ice-field a few months ago. We ought to be very thankful that it was impassable.' Mrs. Barnett was certainly justified in speaking as she did, for what fearful fatigues and sufferings they would all have had to undergo in crossing five hundred miles of ice in the darkness of the polar night. On the 5th May, Hobson announced that Victoria Island had just crossed the Arctic Circle. It had at last re-entered that zone of the terrestrial sphere in which at one period of the year the sun does not set. The poor people all felt that they were returning to the inhabited globe. The event of crossing the Arctic Circle was celebrated in much the same way as crossing the equator for the first time would be on board ship, and many glasses of spirits was drank in honour of the event. There was now nothing left to do but to wait till the broken and half-melted ice should allow of the passage of the boat, which was to bear the whole colony to the land. During the 7th May, the island turned round to the extent of another quarter of its circumference. Cape Bathurst now pointed due north, and those masses of the old chain of icebergs, which still remained standing, were now above it, so that it occupied much of the same position as that assigned to it in maps when it was united to the American continent. The island gradually turned completely round, 
and the sun had risen successively on every point of its shores. The observations of the 8th May showed that the island had become stationary near the middle of the passage, at least forty miles from Cape Prince of Wales, so that land was now at a comparatively short distance from it, and the safety of all seemed to be secured. In the evening a good supper was served in the large room, and the health of Mrs. Barnett and of Lieutenant Hobson were proposed. The same night the lieutenant determined to go and see if any changes had taken place in the ice-field on the south, hoping that a practicable passage might have been opened. Mrs. Barnett was anxious to accompany him, but he persuaded her to rest a little instead, and started off, accompanied only by Sergeant Long. Mrs. Barnett, Madge, and Kalumaha returned to the principal house after seeing them off, and the soldiers and women had already gone to bed in the different apartments assigned to them. It was a fine night, there was no moon, but the stars shone very brightly, and as the ice-field vividly reflected their light, it was possible to see for a considerable distance. It was nine o'clock when the two explorers left the fort, and turned towards that part of the coast between Port Barnett and Cape Michael. They followed the beach for about two miles, and found the ice-field in a state of positive chaos. The sea was one vast aggregation of crystals of every size. It looked as if it had been petrified suddenly when tossing in a tempest, and, alas, there was even now no free passage between the ice-masses. It would be impossible for a boat to pass yet. Hobson and Long remained on the ice-field, talking and looking about them until midnight, and then seeing that there was still nothing to do but wait, they decided to go back to Fort Hope and rest for a few hours. They had gone some hundred paces, and had reached the dried-up bed of Paulina River, when an unexpected noise arrested them. It was a distant rumbling from the northern part of the ice-field, and it became louder and louder, until it was almost deafening. Something dreadful was going on in the quarter from which it came, and Hobson fancied he felt the ice beneath his feet trembling, which was certainly far from reassuring. "'The noise comes from the chain of icebergs,' exclaimed Long. "'What can be going on there?' Hobson did not answer, but feeling dreadfully anxious, he rushed towards the fort, dragging his companion after him. "'To the fort! To the fort!' he cried at last. "'The ice may have opened!' we may be able to launch our boat on the sea. And the two ran, as fast as ever they could, towards Fort Hope by the shortest way. A thousand conjectures crowded upon them. From what new phenomenon did the unexpected noise proceed? Did the sleeping inhabitants of the fort know what was going on? They must certainly have heard the noise, for, in vulgar language, it was loud enough to wake the dead." Hobson and Long crossed the two miles between them and Fort Hope in twenty minutes, but before they reached the encant they saw the men and women they had left asleep, hurrying away in terrified disorder, uttering cries of despair. The carpenter McNab, seeing the lieutenant, ran towards him with his little boy in his arms. "'Look, sir, look!' he cried, drawing his master towards a little hill which rose a few yards behind the fort." Hobson obeyed, and saw that part of the ice-wall, which, when he had left, was two or three miles off in the offing, had fallen upon the coast of the island. Cape Bathurst no longer existed, 
The mass of earth and sand of which it was composed had been swept away by the icebergs and scattered over the palisades. The principal house and all the buildings connected with it on the north were buried beneath the avalanche. Masses of ice were crowding upon each other, tumbling over with an awful crash, crushing everything beneath them. It was like an army of icebergs taking possession of the island. The boat which had been built at the foot of the cape was completely destroyed. The last hope of the unfortunate colonists was gone. As they stood watching the awful scene, the buildings formerly occupied by the soldiers and women, and from which they had escaped in time, gave way beneath an immense block of ice which fell upon them. A cry of despair burst from the lips of the homeless outcasts. And the others, where are they? cried the lieutenant, in heart-rending tones. There, replied MacNab, pointing to the heap of sand, earth and ice, beneath which the principal house had entirely disappeared. Yes, the illustrious lady traveller, Madge, Kalumaha, and Thomas Black, were buried beneath the avalanche which had surprised them in their sleep. End of chapter 17 Part two, chapter eighteen of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter eighteen. All at work. Fearful catastrophe had occurred. The ice wall had been flung upon the wandering island the volume below the water being five times that of the projecting part, it had come under the influence of the submarine currents, and, opening a way for itself, between the broken ice-masses, it had fallen bodily upon Victoria Island, which, driven along by this mighty propelling force, was drifting rapidly to the south. McNab and his companions, aroused by the noise of the avalanche, dashing down upon the dog-house, stable and principal house, had been able to escape in time. But now the destruction was complete. Not a trace remained of the buildings in which they had slept, and the island was bearing all its inhabitants with it to the unfathomable depths of the ocean. Perhaps, however, Mrs. Barnett, Madge, Kalumaha, and the astronomer were still living. Dead or alive, they must be dug out. At this thought Hobson recovered his composure and shouted, Get shovels and pickaxes. The house is strong. It may have held together. Let us set to work. There were plenty of tools and pickaxes, but it was really impossible to approach the encant. The masses of ice were rolling down from the summits of the icebergs, and some parts of the ice wall still towered amongst the ruins two hundred feet above the island. The force with which the tossing masses, which seemed to be surging all along the northern horizon, were overthrown can be imagined. The whole coast between the former Cape Bathurst and Cape Eskimo was not only hemmed in, but literally invaded by these moving mountains, which, impelled by a force they could not resist, had already advanced more than a quarter of a mile inland. Every moment the trembling of the ground and a loud report gave notice that another of these masses had rolled over, and there was a danger that the island would sink beneath the weight thrown upon it. A very apparent lowering of the level had taken place 
all along that part of the coast near Cape Bathurst. It was evidently gradually sinking down, and the sea had already encroached nearly as far as the lagoon. The situation of the colonists was truly terrible. Unable as they were to attempt to save their companions, and driven from the encant by the crashing avalanches, over which they had no power whatever. They could only wait, a prey to the most awful forebodings. Day dawned at last, and how fearful a scene was presented by the districts around Cape Bathurst. The horizon was shut in on every side by ice-masses, but their advance seemed to be checked for the moment at least. The ruins of the ice-wall were at rest, and it was only now and then that a few blocks rolled down from the still tottering crests of the remaining icebergs. But the whole mass, a great part of its volume being sunk beneath the surface of the sea, was in the grasp of a powerful current, and was driving the island along with it to the south, that is to say, to the ocean, in the depth of which they would alike be engulfed. Those who were thus borne along upon the island were not fully conscious of the peril in which they stood. They had their comrades to save, and amongst them the brave woman who had so won all their hearts, and for whom they would gladly have laid down their lives. The time for action had come. They could again approach the palisades, and there was not a moment to lose, as the poor creatures had already been buried beneath the avalanche for six hours. We have already said that Cape Bathurst no longer existed, struck by a huge iceberg, it had fallen bodily upon the factory, breaking the boat and crushing the dog-house and stable with the poor creatures in them. The principal house next disappeared beneath the masses of earth and sand upon which rolled blocks of ice to a height of fifty or sixty feet. The court of the fort was filled up. Of the palisade not a post was to be seen, and it was from beneath this accumulation of earth, sand, and ice that the victims were to be dug out. Before beginning to work, Hobson called the head carpenter to him, and asked if he thought the house could bear the weight of the avalanche. "'I think so, sir,' replied McNabb. "'In fact, I may almost say I am sure of it. You remember how we strengthened it. It has been casemented, and the vertical beams between the ceilings and floors must have offered great resistance. Moreover, the layer of earth and sand with which the roof was first covered must have broken the shock of the fall of the blocks of ice from the icebergs. "'God grant you may be right, McNabb,' replied Hobson, "'and that we may be spared the great grief of losing our friends.' The lieutenant then sent for Mrs. Joliffe, and asked her if plenty of provisions had been left in the house. "'Oh, yes,' replied Mrs. Joliffe, "'there was plenty to eat in the pantry and kitchen. "'And any water? "'Yes, water and rum, too.' "'All right, then,' said Hobson. "'They will not be starved. "'But how about air?' "'To this question, McNabb could make no reply. "'And if, as he hoped, the house had not given way, "'the want of air would be the chief danger of the four victims. "'By prompt measures, however, they might yet be saved, "'and the first thing to be done was to open a communication with the outer air. "'All set to work zealously, men and women alike, "'seizing shovels and pickaxes.' The masses of ice, sand, and earth were vigorously attacked, at the risk of provoking fresh downfalls, but the proceedings were ably directed by McNabb. 
It appeared to him best to begin at the top of the accumulated masses, so as to roll down loose blocks on the side of the lagoon. The smaller pieces were easily dealt with, with pick and crowbar, but the large blocks had to be broken up. Some of the great size were melted with the aid of a large fire of resinous wood, and every means was tried to destroy or get rid of the ice in the shortest possible time. But so great was the accumulation that although all worked without pause, except when they snatched a little food, there was no sensible diminution in its amount when the sun disappeared below the horizon. It was not, however, really of quite so great a height as before, and it was determined to go on working from above through the night, and when there was no longer any danger of fresh falls, McNabb hoped to be able to sink a vertical shaft in the compact mass, so as to admit the outer air to the house as soon as possible. All night long the party worked at the excavation, attacking the masses with iron and heat, as the one or the other seemed more likely to be effective. The men wielded the pickaxe, while the women kept up the fires, but all were animated by one purpose, the saving of the lives of Mrs. Barnett, Madge, Kalumaha, and the astronomer. When the morning dawned, the poor creatures had been buried for thirty hours in air necessarily very impure, under so thick a cover. The progress made in the night had been so great that McNabb prepared to sink his shaft, which he meant to go straight down to the top of the house, and which, according to his calculation, would not have to be more than fifty feet deep. It would be easy enough to sink this shaft through the twenty feet of ice, but great difficulty would be experienced when the earth and sand were reached as, being very brittle, they would of course constantly fill in the shaft, and its sides would therefore have to be lined. Long pieces of wood were prepared for this purpose, and the boring proceeded. Only three men could work at it together, and the soldiers relieved each other constantly, so that the excavation seemed likely to proceed rapidly. As might be supposed, the poor fellows alternated between hope and fear, when some obstacle delayed them. When a sudden fall undid their work, they felt discouraged, and nothing but McNabb's steady voice could have rallied them. As the men toiled in turn at their weary task, the women stood watching them from the foot of the hill, saying little, but often praying silently. They had now nothing to do but to prepare the food, which the men devoured in their short intervals of repose. The boring proceeded without any very great difficulty, but the ice was so hard that the progress was but slow. At the end of the second day, McNabb had nearly reached the layer of earth and sand, and could not hope to get to the top of the house before the end of the next day. Night fell, but the work was continued by the light of torches. A snow-house was hastily dug out in one of the hummocks on the shore as a temporary shelter for the women and little boy. The wind had veered to the southwest, and a cold rain began to fall, accompanied with occasional squalls, but neither the lieutenant nor his men dreamt of leaving off work. Now began the worst part of the task. It was really impossible to bore in the shifting masses of sand and earth, and it became necessary to prop up the sides of the shaft with wood. The loose earth 
being drawn to the surface in a bucket hung on a rope. Of course, under the circumstances, the work could not proceed rapidly. Falls might occur at any moment, and the miners were in danger of being buried in their turn. McNabb was generally the one to remain at the bottom of the narrow shaft, directing the excavation, and frequently sounding with a long pick, but as it met with no resistance, it was evidence that it did not reach the roof of the house. When the morning once more dawned, only ten feet had been excavated in the mass of earth and sand, so that twenty remained to be bored through before the roof of the house could be reached, that is to say, if it had not given way, and still occupied the position it did before the fall of the avalanche. It was now fifty-four hours since Mrs. Barnett and her companions were buried. McNabb and the lieutenant often wondered if they on their side had made any effort to open a communication with the outer air. They felt sure that with her usual courage Mrs. Barnett would have tried to find some way out if her movements were free. Some tools had been left in the house, and Calais, one of the carpenter's men, remembered leaving his pickaxe in the kitchen. The prisoners might have broken open one of the doors and begun to pierce a gallery across the layer of earth. But such a gallery could only be driven in a horizontal direction, and would be a much longer business than the sinking of a shaft from above. For the masses flung down by the avalanche, although only sixty feet deep, covered a space more than five hundred feet in diameter. Of course the prisoners could not be aware of this fact, and if they should succeed in boring their horizontal gallery, it would be eight days at least before they could cut through the last layer of ice, and by that time they would be totally deprived of air, if not of food. Nevertheless, the lieutenant carefully went over every portion of the accumulation himself, and listened intently for any sounds of subterranean digging, but he heard nothing. On the return of the day, the men toiled with fresh energy. Bucket after bucket was drawn to the surface of the shaft loaded with earth. The clumsy wooden props answered admirably in keeping the earth from filling in the pit. A few falls occurred, but they were rapidly checked, and no fresh misfortunes occurred throughout the day, except that the soldier Gary received a blow on the head from a falling block of ice. The wound was not, however, severe, and he would not leave his work. At four o'clock the shaft was fifty feet deep altogether, having been sunk through twenty feet of ice and thirty of sand and earth. It was at this depth that McNabb had expected to reach the roof of the house, if it had resisted the pressure of the avalanche. He was then at the bottom of the shaft, and his disappointment and dismay can be imagined when, on driving his pickaxe into the ground as far as it would go, it met with no resistance whatever. Sabine was with him, and for a few moments he remained with his arms crossed, silently looking at his companion. "'No roof, then?' inquired the hunter. "'Nothing whatever,' replied the carpenter. "'But let us work on. The roof has bent out of course, but the floor of the loft cannot have given way. Another ten feet and we shall come to that floor, or else.' McNabb did not finish his sentence, and the two resumed their work with the strength of despair. At six o'clock in the evening another ten or twelve feet had been dug out. McNabb sounded again. Nothing yet. His pick still sunk in the shifting earth. 
and flinging it from him, he buried his face in his hands and muttered, "'Poor things, poor things!' He then climbed to the opening of the shaft by means of the woodwork. The lieutenant and the sergeant were together in greater anxiety than ever, and taking them aside, the carpenter told them of his dreadful disappointment. "'Then,' observed Hobson, "'the house must have been crushed by the avalanche.' and the poor people in it. No, cried the head carpenter, with earnest conviction. No, it cannot have been crushed. It must have resisted, strengthened as it was. It cannot, it cannot have been crushed. Well, then, what has happened? said the lieutenant, in a broken voice, his eyes filling with tears. Simply this, replied McNabb. The house itself has remained intact, but the ground on which it was built must have sunk. The house has gone through the crust of ice, which formed the foundation of the island. It has not been crushed, but engulfed, and the poor creatures in it are drowned, cried Long. Yes, sergeant, drowned without a moment's notice, drowned like the passengers on a foundered vessel. For some minutes the three men remained silent. McNabb's idea was probably correct. Nothing was more likely than that the ice forming the foundation of the island had given way under such enormous pressure. The vertical props which supported the beams of the ceiling, and rested on those of the floor, had evidently aided the catastrophe by their weight, and the whole house had been engulfed. "'Well, McNabb,' said Hobson at last, "'if we cannot find them alive.' "'We must recover their bodies,' added the head carpenter." and with these words McNabb, accompanied by the lieutenant went back to his work at the bottom of the shaft without a word to any of his comrades of the terrible form his anxiety had now assumed the excavation continued throughout the night the men relieving each other every hour and hobson and McNabb watched them at work without a moment's rest at three o'clock in the morning calais's pickaxe struck against something hard which gave out a ringing sound the head carpenter felt it almost before he heard it. "'We have reached them!' cried the soldier. "'They are saved!' "'Hold your tongue and go on working,' replied the lieutenant in a choked voice. It was now seventy-six hours since the avalanche fell upon the house. Calais and his companion Pond resumed their work. The shaft must have nearly reached the level of the sea, and McNabb therefore felt that all hope was gone." In less than twenty minutes, the hard body which Calais had struck was uncovered, and proved to be one of the rafters of the roof. The carpenter flung himself to the bottom of the shaft, and seizing the pickaxe, sent the lays of the roof flying on every side. In a few moments a large aperture was made, and a figure appeared at it, which was difficult to recognize in the darkness. It was Kalumaha. Help! Help! she murmured feebly. Hobson let himself down through the opening, and found himself up to the waist in ice-cold water. Strange to say, the roof had not given way. But as McNabb had supposed, the house had sunk, and was full of water. The water did not, however, yet fill the loft, and was not more than a foot above the floor. There was still a faint hope. The lieutenant, feeling his way in the darkness, came across a motionless body, and dragging it to the opening, he consigned it to Pond and Calais. It was Thomas Black. Madge, also senseless, was next found. 
and she and the astronomer were drawn up to the surface of the ground with ropes, where the open air gradually restored them to consciousness. Mrs. Barnett was still missing, but Kalumaha led Hobson to the very end of the loft, and there he found the unhappy lady motionless and insensible, with her head scarcely out of the water. The lieutenant lifted her in his arms and carried her to the opening, and a few moments later he had reached the outer air with his burden, followed by McNab with Kalumaha. Everyone gathered round Mrs. Barnett in silent anxiety, and poor Kalumaha, exhausted as she was, flung herself across her friend's body. Mrs. Barnett still breathed, her heart still beat feebly, and revived by the pure fresh air she at last opened her eyes. A cry of joy burst from every lip, a cry of gratitude to heaven for the great mercy vouchsafed, which was doubtless heard above. Day was now breaking in the east, the sun was rising above the horizon, lighting up the ocean with its brilliant beams. Mrs. Barnett painfully staggered to her feet, looking round her from the summit of the new mountain formed by the avalanche, which overlooked the whole island. She murmured in a changed and hollow voice, The sea, the sea. Yes, the ocean now encircled the wandering island. The sea was open at last, and a true sea horizon shut in the view from east to west. End of chapter 18 Part 2, Chapter 19 of The Fur Country this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Chapter 19. Bering Sea. The island, driven by the ice wall, had then drifted at a great speed into Bering Sea, after crossing the strait without running aground on its shores. It was still hurrying on before the icy barrier, which was in the grasp of a powerful submarine current, hastening onwards, on to its inevitable dissolution in the warmer waters of the Pacific, and the boat on which all had depended was useless. As soon as Mrs. Barnett had entirely recovered consciousness, she related in a few words the history of the seventy-four hours spent in the house, now in the water. Thomas Black, Madge, and Kalumaha had been aroused by the crash of the avalanche, and had rushed to the doors or windows. There was no longer any possibility of getting out. The mass of earth and sand, which was but a moment before Cape Bathurst, completely covered the house, and almost immediately afterwards the prisoners heard the crash of the huge ice-masses which were flung upon the factory. In another quarter of an hour, all felt that the house, whilst resisting the enormous pressure, was sinking through the soil of the island. They knew that the crust of ice must have given way, and that the house would fill with water. To seize a few provisions remaining in the pantry, and to take refuge in the loft, was the work of a moment. This the poor creatures did, from a dim instinct of self-preservation. But what hope could they really have of being saved? However, the loft seemed likely to resist, and two blocks of ice abutting from the roof saved it from being immediately crushed. Whilst thus imprisoned, the poor creatures could hear the constant falls from the icebergs, while the sea was gradually rising through the lower rooms. 
they must either be crushed or drowned. But, by little short of a miracle, the roof of the house, with its strong framework, resisted the pressure, and after sinking a certain depth, the house remained stationary, with the water rather above the floor of the loft. The prisoners were obliged to take refuge amongst the rafters of the roof, and there they remained for many hours. Kalumaha devoted herself to the service of the others, and carried food to them through the water. They could make no attempt to save themselves. Succor could only come from without. It was a terrible situation, for breathing was difficult in the vitiated air, deficient as it was in oxygen, and charged with a great excess of carbonic acid. A few hours later Hobson would only have found the corpses of his friends. The horror of the position was increased by the gushing of the water through the lower rooms, which convinced Mrs. Barnett that the island was drifting to the south. She had, in fact, guessed the whole truth. She knew that the ice-wall had heeled over and fallen upon the island, and concluded that the boat was destroyed. It was this fact which gave such terrible significance to her first words when she looked around her after her swoon. The sea, the sea. Those about her, however, could think of nothing yet but the fact that they had saved her for whom they would have died, and with her Madge, Kalumaha, and Thomas Black. Thus far, not one of those who had joined the lieutenant in his disastrous expedition had succumbed to any of the fearful dangers through which they had passed. But matters were not yet at their worst, and fresh troubles were soon to hasten the final catastrophe. Hobson's first care after Mrs. Barnett's recovery was to take the bearings of the island. It was listless now to think of quitting it, as the sea was open and their boat destroyed. A few ruins alone remained of the mighty ice-wall, the upper portion of which had crushed Cape Bathurst, whilst the submerged base was driving the island to the south. The instruments and maps belonging to the astronomer were found in the ruins of the house, and were fortunately uninjured. The weather was cloudy, but Hobson succeeded in taking the altitude of the sun with sufficient accuracy for his purpose. We give the result obtained at noon on the 12th May. Victoria Island was then situated in longitude 168 degrees 12 minutes west of Greenwich, and in latitude 63 degrees 37 minutes north. The exact spot was looked out on the chart, and proved to be in Norton Sound, between Cape Chaplin on the Asiatic and Cape Stephens on the American coast, but a hundred miles from either. "'We must give up all hope of making the land of the continent, then,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'Yes, madam,' replied Hobson. "'All hope of that is at an end. The current is carrying us with great rapidity out into the offing, and our only chance is that we may pass within sight of a whaler.' "'Well, but,' added Mrs. Barnett, "'if we cannot make the land of either continent, "'might not the current drive us to one of the islands of Bering Sea?' "'There was, in fact, a slight possibility that such a thing might happen, "'and all eagerly clutched at the hope, like a drowning man at a plank. "'There are plenty of islands in the Bering Sea, "'St. Lawrence, St. Matthew, Nunavak, St. Paul, George Island, etc.' The wandering island was in fact at that moment not far from St. Lawrence, which is of considerable size, and surrounded with islets, 
and should it pass it without stopping, there was yet a hope that the cluster of the Aleutian Islands, bounding Bering Sea on the south, might arrest its course. Yes, St. Lawrence might be a harbour of refuge for the colonists, and if it failed them, St. Matthew and the group of islets, of which it is the centre, would still be left. It would not do, however, to count upon the Aleutian Islands, which were more than eight hundred miles away, and which they might never reach. Long, long before they got so far, Victoria Island, worn away by the warm sea waves, and melted by the rays of the sun, which was already in the sign of Gemini, would most likely have sunk to the bottom of the ocean. There is, however, no fixed point beyond which floating ice does not advance. It approaches nearer to the equator in the southern than in the northern hemisphere. Icebergs have been seen off the Cape of Good Hope, at about thirty-six degrees south latitude, but those which come down from the Arctic Ocean have never passed forty degrees north latitude. The weather conditions, which are of course variable, determine the exact locality where ice will melt. In severe and prolonged winters it remains solid in comparatively low latitudes, and vice versa in early springs. Now the warm season of 1861 had set in very early, and this would hasten the dissolution of Victoria Island. The waters of Bering Sea had already changed from blue to green, as the great navigator Hudson observed they always do on the approach of icebergs, so that a catastrophe might be expected at any moment. Hobson, determined to do his best to avert the coming misfortune, and ordered a raft to be constructed, which could carry the whole colony, and might be guided to the continent somehow or other. There was every chance of meeting vessels now that the whaling season had commenced, and McNabb was commissioned to make a large, solid raft, which would float when Victoria Island was engulfed. But first of all it was necessary to construct some shelter for the homeless inhabitants of the island. The simple plan appeared to be to dig out the old barracks, which had been built on to the principal house, and the walls of which were still standing. Every one set to work with a hearty good will, and in a few days a shelter was provided from the inclemencies of the fickle weather. Search was also made in the ruins of the large house, and a good many articles of more or less value were saved from the submerged rooms. Tools, arms, furniture, the air-pumps, and the air-vessel, etc. On the 13th May, all hope of drifting to the island of St. Lawrence had to be abandoned. When the bearings were taken, it was found that they were passing at a considerable distance to the east of that island, and, as Hobson was well aware, currents do not run against natural obstacles, but turn them so that little hope could be entertained of thus making the land. It is true the network of islands in the Catherine archipelago, scattered over several degrees of latitude, might stop the island if it ever got so far. But, as we have stated before, that was not probable, although it was advancing at great speed, for this speed must decrease considerably when the ice-wall, which was driving it along, should be broken away or dissolved, unprotected as it was from the heat of the sun by any covering of earth or sand. Lieutenant Hobson, Mrs. Barnett, Sergeant Long, and the head carpenter often discussed these matters, 
and came to the conclusion that the island could certainly never reach the Aleutian group with so many chances against it. On the 14th May, McNabb and his men commenced the construction of a huge raft. It had to be as high as possible above the water to prevent the waves from breaking over it, so that it was really a formidable undertaking. The blacksmith Ray had fortunately found a large number of the iron bolts which had been brought from Fort Reliance, and they were invaluable for firmly fastening together the different portions of the framework of the raft. We must describe the novel site for the building of the raft suggested by Lieutenant Hobson. Instead of joining the timbers and planks together on the ground, they were joined on the surface of the lake. The different pieces of wood were prepared on the banks and launched separately. They were then easily fitted together on the water. This mode of proceeding had two advantages. One, the carpenter would be able at once to judge of the point of flotation and the stability which would be given to the raft. Two, when Victoria Island melted, the raft would already be floating and would not be liable to the shocks it would receive if on land when the inevitable break-up came. Whilst these works were going on, Hobson would wander about on the beach, either alone or with Mrs. Barnett, examining the state of the sea, and the ever-changing windings of the coastline, worn by the constant action of the waves. He would gaze upon the vast, deserted ocean, from which the very icebergs had now disappeared, watching, ever watching, like a shipwrecked mariner, for the vessel which never came. The ocean solitudes were only frequented by cetacea, which came to feed upon the microscopic animaculae, which formed their principal food, and abound in the green waters. Now and then floating trees of different kinds, which had been brought by the great ocean currents from warm latitudes, passed the island on their way to the north. On the 16th May, Mrs. Barnett and Madge were walking together on that part of the island between the former Cape Bathurst and Port Barnett. It was a fine warm day, and there had been no traces of snow on the ground for some time. All that recalled the bitter cold of the polar regions were the relics left by the ice wall on the northern part of the island. But even these were rapidly melting, and every day fresh waterfalls poured from their summits and bathed their sides. Very soon the sun would have completely dissolved every atom of ice. Strange indeed was the aspect of Victoria Island, but for their terrible anxiety, the colonists must have gazed at it with eager interest. The ground was more prolific than it could have been in any former spring, transferred as it was to milder latitudes. The little mosses and tender flowers grew rapidly, and Mrs. Jolie's garden was wonderfully successful. The vegetation of every kind, hitherto checked by the rigor of the Arctic winter, was not only more abundant, but more brilliantly colored. The hues of leaves and flowers were no longer pale and watery, but warm and glowing, like the sunbeams which called them forth. The arbutus, willow, birch, fir, and pine trees were clothed with dark verdure, the sap, sometimes heated in a temperature of sixty-eight degrees Fahrenheit, burst open the young buds. In a word, the Arctic landscape was completely transformed, for the island was now beneath the same parallel of latitude as Christiania or Stockholm, that is to say, 
in one of the finest districts of the temperate zones. But Mrs. Barnett had now no eyes for these wonderful phenomena of nature. The shadow of the coming doom clouded her spirit. She shared the feeling of desperation manifested by the hundreds of animals now collected round the factory. The foxes, martens, ermines, lynxes, beavers, muskrats, gluttons, and even the wolves, rendered less savage by their instinctive knowledge of a common danger, approached nearer and nearer to their old enemy, as if man could save them. It was a tacit, a touching acknowledgment of human superiority, under circumstances in which that superiority could be of absolutely no avail. No, Mrs. Barnett cared no longer for the beauties of nature, and gazed without ceasing upon the boundless, pitiless, infinite ocean with its unbroken horizon. Poor Madge, she said at last to her faithful companion, it was I who brought you to this terrible pass, you who have followed me everywhere, and whose fidelity deserved a far different recompense. Can you forgive me? There is but one thing I could never have forgiven you, replied Madge, a death I did not share. Ah, Madge, cried Mrs. Barnett, if my death could have saved the lives of all these poor people, how gladly would I die. My dear girl, replied Madge, have you lost all hope at last? I have indeed, murmured Mrs. Barnett, hiding her face on Madge's shoulder. The strong, masculine nature had given way at last, and Mrs. Barnett was for a moment a feeble woman. Was not her emotion excusable in so awful a situation? Mrs. Barnett sobbed aloud, and large tears rolled down her cheeks. Madge kissed and caressed her, and tried all she could to reassure her, and presently raising her head, her poor mistress said, Do not tell them, Madge, how I have given way. Do not betray that I have wept. Of course not, said Madge, and they would not believe me if I did. It was but a moment's weakness. Be yourself, dear girl. Cheer up and take fresh courage. Do you mean to say you still hope yourself? exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, looking anxiously into her companion's face. I still hope, said Madge simply. But a few days afterwards, every chance of safety seemed to indeed be gone, when the wandering island passed outside the St. Matthew group, and drifted away from the last land in Bering Sea. End of chapter 19 Part 2, Chapter 20 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Chapter 20 in the offing. Victoria Island was now floating in the widest part of Bering Sea, six hundred miles from the nearest of the Aleutian Islands, and two hundred miles from the nearest land, which was on the east. Supposing no accident happened, it would be three weeks at least before this southern boundary of Bering Sea could be reached. Could the island last so long? Might it not burst open at any moment, subject as it was to even now the constant action of tepid water, the mean temperature of which was more than fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Lieutenant Hobson, 
pressed on the construction of the raft as rapidly as possible, and the lower framework was already floating on the lagoon. McNab wished to make it as strong as possible, for it would have a considerable distance to go to reach the Aleutian Islands, unless they were fortunate enough to meet with a whaler. No important alteration had lately taken place in the general configuration of the island. Reconnaissance were taken every day, but great caution was necessary, as a fracture of the ground might at any moment cut off the explorers from the rest of the party. The wide gulf near Cape Michael, which the winter had closed, had reopened gradually, and now ran a mile inland, as far as the dried-up bed of the little river. It was probable that it was soon to extend to the bed itself, which was, of course, of little thickness, having been hollowed out by the stream. Should it do so, the whole district between Cape Michael and Port Barnett, bounded on the west by the river bed, would disappear. That is to say, the colonists would lose a good many square miles of their dominion. On this account, Hobson warned everyone not to wander far, as a rough sea would be enough to bring about the dreaded catastrophe. Soundings were, however, taken in several places, with a view to ascertaining where the ice was thickest, and it was found that, near Cape Bathurst, not only was the layer of earth and sand of greater extent, which was of little importance, but the crust of ice was thicker than anywhere else. This was a most fortunate circumstance, and the holes made in sounding were kept open, so that the amount of diminution in the base of the island could be estimated every day. This diminution was slow but sure, and making allowances for the unfortunate fact that the island was drifting into warmer waters, it was decided that it was impossible for it to last another three weeks. The next week, from the 19th to the 25th May, the weather was very bad. A fearful storm broke over the island, accompanied by flash after flash of lightning and peals of thunder. The sea rose high, lashed by a powerful northwest wind, and its waves broke over the doomed island, making it tremble ominously. The little colony were on the watch, ready on an emergency to embark in the raft, the scaffolding of which was nearly finished, and some provisions and fresh water were taken on board. Rain heavy enough to penetrate the ice-crust fell in large quantities during this storm, and melted it in many places. On the slopes of some of the hills the earth was washed away, leaving the white foundations bare. These ravines were hastily filled up with soil to protect the ice from the action of the warm air and rain, and, but for this precaution, the soil would have been everywhere perforated. Great havoc was caused amongst the woods by this storm. The earth and sand were washed away from the roots of the trees, which fell in large numbers. In a single night, the aspect of the country between the lake and the former Port Barnett was completely changed. A few groups of birch-trees and thickets of firs alone remained, a fact significant of approaching decomposition, which no human skill could prevent. Everyone knew and felt that the ephemeral island was gradually succumbing, every one except Thomas Black, who was still gloomily indifferent to all that was going on. On the 23rd of May, during the storm, the hunter Sabine left the house in the thick fog and was nearly drowned in a large hole, which had opened during the night on the site formerly occupied by the principal house of the factory. 
Hitherto, as we are aware, the house, three-quarters submerged, and buried beneath a mass of earth and sand, had remained fixed in the ice-crust beneath the island. But now the sea had evidently enlarged the crevice, and the house, with all it contained, had sunk to rise no more. Earth and sand were pouring through this fissure, at the bottom of which surged the tempest-tossed waves. Sabine's comrades, hearing his cries, rushed to his assistance, and were just in time to save him, as he was still clinging to the slippery walls of the abyss. He escaped with a ducking, which might have had tragic consequences. A little later, the beams and planks of the house, which had slid under the island, were seen floating about in the offing, like the spars of a wrecked vessel. This was the worst the evil storm had wrought, and would compromise the solidity of the island yet more, as the waves would now eat away the ice all around the crevice. In the course of the 25th May, the wind veered to the northeast, and although it blew strongly, it was no longer a hurricane. The rains ceased, and the sea became calmer. After a quiet night, the sun rose upon the desolate scene. The lieutenant was able to take the bearings accurately, and obtained the following result. At noon on the 25th of May, Victoria Island was in latitude 56 degrees, 13 minutes, and longitude 170 degrees, 23 minutes. It had therefore advanced at great speed, having drifted nearly 800 miles since the breaking up of the ice set it free in Bering Strait two months before. The great speed made the lieutenant once more entertain a slight hope. He pointed out the Aleutian Islands on the map to his comrades, and said, "'Look at these islands. They are not now two hundred miles from us, and we may reach them in eight days.' Eight days?' repeated Long, shaking his head. Eight days is a long time.' "'I must add,' continued Hobson, "'that if our island had followed the hundred and sixty-eighth meridian, it would already have reached the parallel of these islands.' but in consequence of a deviation of the bearing current, it is bearing in a southwesterly direction. The lieutenant was right. The current seemed likely to drag the islands away from all land, even out of the sight of the Aleutian Islands, which only extend as far as the hundred and seventieth meridian. Mrs. Barnett examined the map in silence. She saw the pencil mark which denoted the exact spot then occupied by the island. The map was on a large scale, and the point representing the island looked but a speck upon the vast expanse of the Bering Sea. She traced back the route by which the island had come to its present position, marvelling at the fatality, or rather the immutable law, by which the currents had borne it along, had avoided all land, sheering clear of islands and never touching either continent, and she saw the boundless Pacific Ocean towards which she and all with her were hurrying. She mused long upon this melancholy subject, and at last exclaimed suddenly, "'Could not the course of the island be controlled? Eight days at this pace would bring us to the last island of the Aleutian group.' "'Those eight days are in the hands of God,' replied Lieutenant Hobson gravely. "'We can exercise no control upon them. Help can only come to us from above.' "'There is nothing left for us to try.' "'I know, I know,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'But heaven helps those who help themselves. "'Is there really nothing we can do?' "'Hobson shook his head doubtfully. "'His only hope was in the raft. 
and he was undecided whether to embark every one on it at once, contrive some sort of sail with claws, etc., and try to reach the nearest land, or to wait yet a little longer. He consulted Sergeant Long, McNabb, Ray, Marber, and Sabine, in whom he had great confidence, and all agreed it would be unwise to abandon the island before they were obliged. The raft, constantly swept as it would be by the waves, could only be a last resort, and would not move at half the pace of the island, still driven towards the south by the remains of the ice wall. The wind generally blew from the east, and would be likely to drift the raft out into the offing, away from all land. They must still wait, then, always wait, for the island was drifting rapidly towards the Aleutians. When they really approached the group, they would be able to see what it would be best to do. This was certainly the wisest course to take. In eight days, if the present speed were maintained, the island would either stop at the southern boundary of Bering Sea, or be dragged to the southwest, to the waters of the Pacific Ocean, where certain destruction awaited it. But the adverse fate, which seemed all along to have followed the hapless colonists, had yet another blow in store for them. The speed on which they counted was, now to fail them, as everything else had done. During the night of the 26th May, the orientation of the island changed once more, and this time the results of the displacement were extremely serious. The island turned half round, and the icebergs still remaining of the huge ice wall, which had shut in the northern horizons, were now on the south. In the morning, the shipwrecked travellers, what name could be more appropriate, saw the sun rise above Cape Eskimo instead of above Port Barnett. Hardly a hundred yards off rose the icebergs, rapidly melting, but still of considerable size, which till then had driven the island before them. The southern horizon was now partly shut in by them. What would be the consequences of this fresh change of position? Would not the icebergs now float away from the island, with which they were no longer connected? All were oppressed with a presentiment of some new misfortune, and understood only too well what Calais meant when he exclaimed, "'This evening we shall have lost our screw!' By this, Calais meant that the icebergs, being before instead of behind the island, would soon leave it, and as it was they which imparted to its rapid motion, in consequence of their very great draught of water, their volume being six or seven feet below the sea-level for every one above, they would now go on without it, impelled by the submarine current, whilst Victoria Island, not deep enough in the water to come under the influence of the current, would be left floating helplessly on the waves. Yes, Calais was right. The island would then be like a vessel, with disabled masts and a broken screw. No one answered the soldier's remark, and a quarter of an hour had not elapsed before a loud cracking sound was heard. The summits of the icebergs trembled, large masses broke away, and the icebergs, irresistibly drawn along by the submarine current, drifted rapidly to the south. End of chapter 20 Part 2, Chapter 21 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Chapter 21. The Island Becomes an Islet. Three hours later, the last relics of the ice wall had disappeared, proving that the island now remained stationary, and that all the force of the current was deep down below the waves, not on the surface of the sea. The bearings were taken at noon with the greatest care, and twenty-four hours later it was found that Victoria Island had not advanced one mile. The only remaining hope was that some vessel should sight the poor shipwrecked creatures, either while still on the island or after they had taken to their raft. The island was now in fifty-four degrees, thirty-three minutes latitude, and one hundred and seventy-seven degrees, nineteen minutes longitude, several hundred miles from the nearest land, namely the Aleutian Islands. Hobson once more called his comrades together, and asked them what they thought it would be best to do. All agreed that they should remain on the island until it broke up, as it was too large to be affected by the state of the sea, and only to take to the raft when the dissolution actually commenced. Once on the frail vessel, they must wait, still wait. The raft was now finished. McNab had made one large shed or cabin, big enough to hold everyone, and to afford some little shelter from the weather. A mast had been prepared, which could be put up if necessary, and the sails intended for the boat had long been ready. The whole structure was strong, although clumsy, and if the wind were favourable and the sea not too rough, this rude assortment of planks and timbers might save the lives of the whole party. "'Nothing,' observed Mrs. Barnett, "'nothing is impossible to him who rules the winds and the waves.' Hobson carefully looked over the stores of provisions. The reserves had been much damaged by the avalanche, but there were plenty of animals still on the island, and the abundant shrubs and mosses supplied them with food. A few reindeer and hares were slaughtered by the hunters, and their flesh salted for future needs. The health of the colonists was on the whole good. They had suffered little in the preceding mild winter, and all the mental trials they had gone through had not affected their physical well-being. They were, however, looking forward with something of a shrinking horror, to the moment when they should have to abandon their island home, or, to speak more correctly, when it abandoned them. It was no wonder that they did not like the thought of floating on the ocean in a rude structure of wood, subject to all the caprices of winds and waves. Even in tolerably fine weather, seas would be shipped, and every one constantly drenched with salt water. Moreover, it must be remembered that the men were none of them sailors, accustomed to navigation, and ready to risk their lives on a few planks, but soldiers trained for service on land. Their island was fragile, it is true, and rested on a thin crust of ice, but then it was covered with a productive soil. Trees and shrubs flourished upon it. Its huge bulk rendered it insensible to the motion of the waves, and it might have been supposed to be stationary. They had, in fact, become attached to Victoria Island, on which they had lived nearly two years. Every inch of the ground had become familiar to them. They had tilled the soil, and had come safely through so many perils in their wandering home, that in leaving it they felt as if they were parting from an old and sorely tried friend. Hobson fully sympathized with the feeling of his men, and understood their repugnance to embarking on the raft. 
but then he also knew that the catastrophe could not now be deferred much longer, and ominous symptoms already gave warning of its rapid approach. We will now describe this raft. It was thirty feet square, and its deck rose two feet above the water. Its bulwarks would therefore be kept out of the small, but not the large waves. In the centre the carpenter had built a regular deck-house, which would hold some twenty people. Round it were large lockers for the provisions and water-casks, all firmly fixed to the deck with iron bolts. The mast, thirty feet high, was fastened to the deck-house, and strengthened with stays attached to the corners of the raft. The mast was to have a square sail, which would only be useful when the wind was aft. A sort of rudder was fixed to this rough structure, the fittings of which were necessarily incomplete. Such was the raft constructed by the head carpenter, on which twenty-one persons were to embark. It was floating peacefully on the little lake, strongly moored to the shore. It was certainly constructed with more care than if it had been put together in haste on a vessel at sea, doomed to immediate destruction. It was stronger and better fitted up, but after all it was but a raft. On the first June a new incident occurred. Hope, one of the soldiers, went to fetch some water from the lake for culinary purposes, and when Mrs. Joliffe tasted it, she found that it was salt. She called Hope and said she wanted fresh, not salt water. The man replied that he had brought it from the lake as usual, and as he and Mrs. Joliffe were disputing about it, the lieutenant happened to come in. Hearing Hope's repeated assertions that he had fetched the water from the lake, he turned pale and hurried to the lagoon. The waters were quite salt. The bottom of the lake had evidently given way, and the sea had flowed in. The fact quickly became known, and every one was seized with a terrible dread. "'No more fresh water!' exclaimed all the poor creatures together. Lake Barnett had in fact disappeared, as Paulina River had done before. Lieutenant Hobson hastened to reassure his comrades about drinkable water. "'There will be plenty of ice, my friends,' he said. "'We can always melt a piece of our island and—' he added with ghastly attempt at a smile, I don't suppose we shall drink at all. It is, in fact, well known that salt separates from sea-water in freezing and evaporation. A few blocks of ice were therefore disinterred, if we may so express it, and melted for daily use, and to fill the casks on board the raft. It would not do, however, to neglect this fresh warning given by nature. The invasion of the lake by the sea proved that the base of the island was rapidly melting. At any moment the ground might give way, and Hobson forbade his men to leave the factory, as they might be drifted away before they were aware of it. The animals seemed more keenly alive than ever to approaching danger. They gathered yet more closely round the firmer part, and after the disappearance of the freshwater lake they came to lick the blocks of ice. They were all uneasy, and some seemed to be seized with madness, especially the wolves who rushed wildly towards the factory, and dashed away again, howling piteously. The furred animals remained huddled together round the large well where the principal house had formerly stood. There were several hundreds of them, of different species, and the solitary bear roamed backwards and forwards, 
showing no more hostility to the quadrupeds than to men. The number of birds, which had hitherto been considerable, now decreased. During the last few days, all those capable of long-sustained flight, such as swans, etc., migrated towards the Aleutian Islands in the south, where they would find a sure refuge. This significant and ominous fact was noted by Mrs. Barnett and Madge, who were walking together on the beach. "'There is plenty of food for these birds on the island,' observed Mrs. Barnett, "'and yet they leave it. They have good reason, no doubt.' "'Yes,' replied Madge, "'their instinct of self-preservation makes them take flight, and they give us a warning by which we ought to profit. The animals also appear more uneasy than usual.' Hobson now decided to take the greater part of the provisions and all the camping apparatus on board the raft, and when that was done, to embark with the whole party. The sea was, however, very rough, and the waters of the former lake, now a kind of Mediterranean in miniature, were greatly agitated. The waves, confined in the narrow space, dashed mountains high, and broke violently upon the steep banks. The raft tossed up and down, and shipped sea after sea. The embarkation of provisions, etc., had to be put off. Everyone wished to pass one more quiet night on land, and Hobson yielded against his better judgment, determined, if it were calmer the next day, to proceed with the embarkation. The night was more peaceful than had been expected. The wind went down, and the sea became calmer. It had but been swept by one of those sudden and brief hurricanes peculiar to these latitudes. At eight o'clock in the evening the tumult ceased, and a slight surface agitation of the waters of the lake and sea alone remained. It was some slight comfort that the island would not now be broken up suddenly, as it must have done had the storm continued. Its dissolution was, of course, still close at hand, but would not, it was hoped, be sudden and abrupt. The storm was succeeded by a slight fog, which seemed likely to thicken during the night. It came from the north, and owing to the changed position of the island, would probably cover the greater part of it. Before going to bed, Hobson went down and examined the moorings of the raft, which were fastened to some strong birch-trees. To make security doubly sure, he tightened them, and the worst that could now happen would be that the raft would drift out onto the lagoon, which was not large enough to be lost upon it. End of chapter 21 Part 2, Chapter 22 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE FUR COUNTRY by Jules Verne CHAPTER Twenty Two, THE FOUR FOLLOWING DAYS The night was calm, and in the morning the lieutenant resolved to order the embarkation of everything and everybody that very day. He therefore went down to the lake to look at the raft. The fog was still thick, but the sunbeams were beginning to struggle through it. The clouds had been swept away by the hurricane of the preceding day, and it seemed likely to be hot. When Hobson reached the banks of the lake, the fog was still too dense for him to make out anything on its surface, and he was waiting for it to clear away, when he was joined by Mrs. Barnett, Madge, and several others. 
The fog gradually cleared off, drawing back to the end of the lake, but the raft was nowhere to be seen. Presently a gust of wind completely swept away the fog. The raft was gone. There was no longer a lake. The boundless ocean stretched away before the astonished colonists. Hobson could not check a cry of despair, and when he and his companions turned round and saw the sea on every side, they realized with a shock of horror that their island was now nothing more than an islet. During the night, six-sevenths of the district, once belonging to Cape Bathurst, had silently floated away, without producing a shock of any kind. So completely had the ice been worn away by the constant action of the waves. The raft had drifted out into the offing, and those whose last hope it had been could not see a sign of it on the desolate sea. The unfortunate colonists were now overwhelmed with despair. Their last hope, gone, they were hanging above an awful abyss, ready to swallow them up, and some of the soldiers, in a fit of madness, were about to throw themselves into the sea, when Mrs. Barnett flung herself before them, entreating them to desist. They yielded, some of them weeping like children. The awful situation of the colonists was indeed manifest enough, and we may well pity the lieutenant, surrounded by the miserable, despairing creatures. Twenty-one persons on an islet of ice, which must quickly melt beneath their feet. The wooded hills had disappeared with the mass of the island now engulfed. Not a tree was left. There was no wood remaining but the planks of the rough lodging, which would not be nearly enough to hold a raft to hold so many. A few days of life were all the colonists could now hope for. June had set in. The mean temperature exceeded sixty-eight degrees Fahrenheit, and the island must rapidly melt. As a forlorn hope, Hobson thought he would make a reconnaissance of his limited domain, and see if any part of it was thicker than where they were all now encamped. In this excursion he was accompanied by Mrs. Barnett and Madge. "'Do you still hope?' inquired the lady of her faithful companion. "'I hope ever,' replied Madge. Mrs. Barnett did not answer, but walked rapidly along the coast at the lieutenant's side. No alteration had taken place between Cape Bathurst and Cape Eskimo, that is to say, for a distance of eight miles. It was at Cape Eskimo that the fracture had taken place, and running inland it followed a curved line as far as the beginning of the lagoon, from which point the shores of the lake, now bathed by the waves of the sea, formed the new coastline. Towards the upper part of the lagoon there was another fracture, running as far as the coast, between Cape Bathurst and what was once Port Barnett, so that the islet was merely an oblong strip, not more than a mile wide anywhere. Of the hundred and forty square miles which once formed the total superficial area of the island, only twenty remained. Hobson most carefully examined the new conformation of the islet, and found that its thickest part was still at the site of the former factory. He decided, therefore, to retain the encampment where it was, and, strange to say, the instinct of the quadrupeds still led them to congregate about it. A great many of the animals had, however, disappeared with the rest of the island, amongst them many of the dogs which had escaped the former catastrophe. Most of the quadrupeds remaining were rodents, and the bear, which seemed terribly puzzled, 
paced round and round the islet like a caged animal. About five o'clock in the evening, the three explorers returned to the camp. The men and women were gathered together in gloomy silence in the rough shelter still remaining to them, and Mrs. Joliffe was preparing some food. Sabine, who was less overcome than his comrades, was wandering about in the hope of getting some fresh venison, and the astronomer was sitting apart from every one, gazing at the sea in an absent, indifferent manner, as if nothing could ever rouse or astonish him again. The lieutenant imparted the results of his excursion to the whole party. He told them that they were safer where they were than they would be on any other spot, and he urged them not to wander about, as there were signs of another approaching fracture halfway between the camp and Cape Eskimo. The superficial area of the islet would soon be yet further reduced, and they could do nothing, absolutely nothing. The day was really quite hot. The ice which had been disinterred for drinkable water melted before it was brought near the fire. Thin pieces of the ice crust of the steep beach fell off into the sea, and it was evident that the general level of the islet was being lowered by the constant wearing away of its base in the tepid waters. No one slept the next night. Who could have closed his eyes with the knowledge that the abyss might open at any moment? Who but the little unconscious child who still smiled in his mother's arms and was never for one instant out of them? The next morning, June 4th, the sun rose in a cloudless sky. No change had taken place in the conformation of the islet during the night. In the course of this day, a terrified blue fox rushed into the shed and could not be induced to leave it. The martens, ear mines, polar hares, muskrats, and beavers literally swarmed upon the site of the former factory. The wolves alone were unrepresented and had probably all been swallowed up with the rest of the island. The bear no longer wandered from Cape Bathurst, and the furred animals seemed quite unconscious of its presence. Nor did the colonists notice it much, absorbed as they were in the contemplation of the approaching doom, which had broken down all the ordinary distinctions of race. A little before noon a sudden hope, too soon to end in disappointment, revived the drooping spirits of the colonists. Sabine, who had been standing for some time on the highest part of the islet, looking at the sea, suddenly cried, A boat! A boat! It was as if an electric shock had suddenly ran through the group, for all started up and rushed towards the hunter. The lieutenant looked at him inquiringly, and the man pointed to a white vapour on the horizon. Not a word was spoken but all watched in breathless silence as the form of a vessel gradually rose against the sky. It was indeed a ship, and most likely a whaler. There was no doubt about it, and at the end of an hour even the keel was visible. Unfortunately, this vessel appeared on the east of the islet, that is to say, on the opposite side to that from which the raft had drifted so that there could be no hope that it was coming to their rescue after meeting with the raft, which would have suggested the fact of fellow-creatures being in danger. The question was now, would those in the vessel perceive the islet? Would they be able to make out signals on it? Alas, in broad daylight, with a bright sun shining, it was not likely they would. 
Had it been night, some of the planks of the remaining shed might have made a fire large enough to be seen at a considerable distance. But the boat would probably have disappeared before the darkness set in, and although it seemed of little use, signals were made and guns fired on the islet. The vessel was certainly approaching and seemed to be a large three-master, evidently a whaler from New Archangel, which was on its way to Bering Strait after having doubled the peninsula of Alaska. It was to the windward of the islet and tacking to starboard with its lower sails, top-sails and top-gallant sails all set. It was steadily advancing to the north. A sailor would have seen at a glance that it was not bearing towards the islet, but it might even yet perceive it and alter its course. If it does see us, whispered Hobson in Long's ear, it is more likely to avoid us than to come nearer. The lieutenant was right, for there is nothing vessels dread more in these latitudes than the approach of icebergs and ice floes. They look upon them as floating rocks, against which there is a danger of striking, especially in the night, and they therefore hasten to change their course when ice is sighted. And this vessel would most likely do the same, if it noticed the islet at all. The alternations of hope and despair through which the anxious watchers passed may be imagined, but cannot be described. Until two o'clock in the afternoon they were able to believe that heaven had at last taken pity on them, that help was coming, that their safety was assured. The vessel continued to approach in an oblique direction, and was presently not more than six miles from the islet. Signal after signal was tried, gun after gun fired, and some of the planks of the shed were burnt. All in vain, either they were not seen, or the vessel was anxious to avoid the islet. At half-past two it luffed slightly, and bore away to the northeast. In another hour a white vapour was all that was visible, and that soon disappeared. On this the soldier Calais burst into a roar of hysterical laughter, and flinging himself on the ground, rolled over and over like a madman. Mrs. Barnett turned and looked Madge full in the face, as if to ask her if she still hoped, and Madge turned away her head. On this same ill-fated day a crackling noise was heard, and the greater part of the islet broke off and plunged into the sea. The cries of the drowning animals rent the air, and the islet was reduced to the narrow strip between the site of the engulfed house and Cape Bathurst. It was now merely a piece of ice. End of chapter 22 Part two, chapter twenty three of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter twenty three. On a piece of ice. A piece of ice, a jagged, triangular strip of ice, measuring one hundred feet at its base, and scarcely five hundred in its greatest extent and on it twenty-one human beings, some hundred furred animals, a few dogs, and a large bear, which was at this moment crouching at the very edge. Yes, all the luckless colonists were there. Not one had yet been swallowed up. The last rupture had occurred when they were all in the shed. 
Thus far fate had spared them, probably that they might all perish together. A silent, sleepless night ensued. No one spoke or moved, for the slightest shake or blow might suffice to break the ice. No one would touch the salt meat served round by Mrs. Joliffe. What would be the good of eating? Nearly every one remained in the open air, feeling that it would be better to be drowned in the open sea than in a narrow wooden shed. The next day, June fifth, the sun shone brightly down upon the heads of the doomed band of wanderers. All were still silent and seemed anxious to avoid each other. Many gazed with troubled, anxious eyes at the perfect circle of the horizon, of which the miserable little strip of ice formed the centre. But the sea was absolutely deserted. Not a sail, not an ice floe, not an islet. Their own piece of ice was probably the very last floating on the Bering Sea. The temperature continued to rise. The wind had gone down, and a terrible calm had set in. A gentle swell heaved the surface of the sea, and the morsel of earth and ice, which was all that was left of Victoria Island, rose and sank without change of position, like a wreck. And what was it but a wreck? But a wreck, a piece of woodwork, a broken mast, or a few planks remain floating. They offer some resistance to the waves, they will not melt. But this piece of ice, this solidified water, must dissolve with the heat of the sun. This piece of ice had formed the thickest part of the island, and this will explain its having lasted so long. A layer of earth and plenty of vegetation covered it, and the base of ice must have been of considerable thickness. The long, bitter polar winters must have fed it with fresh ice, in countless centuries during which it was connected with the mainland. Even now its mean height was five or six feet above the sea level, and its base was probably of about the same thickness. Although in these quiet waters it was not likely to be broken, it could not fail gradually to melt, and the rapid dissolution could actually be watched at the edges, for as the long waves licked the sides, piece after piece of ground, with its verdant covering, sank to rise no more. On this 5th June, a fall of this nature occurred at about one o'clock p.m., on the site of the shed itself, which was very near the edge of the ice. There was fortunately no one in it at the time, and all that was saved was a few planks, and two or three of the timbers of the roofs. Most of the cooking utensils and all the astronomical instruments were lost. The colonists were now obliged to take refuge on the highest part of the islet, where nothing protected them from the weather. But fortunately a few tools had been left there, with the air-pumps and the air-vessel, which Hobson had employed for catching a little of the rain-water for drinking purposes. As he no longer dared to draw for a supply upon the ice, every atom of which was of value. At about four o'clock p.m., the soldier Calais, the same who had already given signs of insanity, came to Mrs. Barnett and said quietly, "'I am going to drown myself, ma'am.' "'What, Calais?' exclaimed the lady. "'I tell you, I am going to drown myself,' replied the soldier. "'I have thought the matter well over. There is no escape for us, and I prefer dying at once to waiting to be killed.' "'Calais!' said Mrs. Barnett, taking the man's hand and looking into his face, which was strangely composed. "'You will not do that.' "'Yes, I will, ma'am. 
and as you have always been very good to us all, I wanted to wish you good-bye. Good-bye, ma'am. And Calais turned towards the sea. Mrs. Barnett, terrified at his manner, threw herself upon him and held him back. Her cries brought Hobson and Long to her assistance, and they did all in their power to dissuade the unhappy man from carrying out his purpose. But he was not to be moved, and merely shook his head. His mind was evidently disordered, and it was useless to reason with him. It was a terrible moment, as his example might lead some of his comrades to commit suicide also. At all hazards, he must be prevented from doing as he threatened. "'Calais,' said Mrs. Barnett gently, with half a smile, "'we have always been very good friends, have we not?' "'Yes, ma'am,' replied Calais calmly. "'Well, Calais, if you like we will die together, but not to-day.' "'What, ma'am?' "'No, my brave fellow, I am not ready, but to-morrow, to-morrow if you like.' The soldier looked more fixedly than ever at the courageous woman, and seemed to hesitate an instant. Then he cast a glance of fierce longing at the sea and passing his hand over his eye, said, "'To-morrow!' And without another word he quietly turned away and went back to his comrades. "'Poor fellow,' murmured Mrs. Barnett, "'I have asked him to wait till to-morrow, and who can say whether we shall not all be drowned by that time?' Throughout that night Hobson remained motionless upon the beach, pondering whether there might not yet be some means to check the dissolution of the islet if it might not yet be possible to preserve it until they came in sight of land of some sort. Mrs. Barnett and Madge did not leave each other for an instant. Kalumaha crouched like a dog at the feet of her mistress, and tried to keep her warm. Mrs. McNabb, wrapped in a few furs, the remains of the rich stores of Fort Hope, had fallen into a kind of torpor, with her baby clasped in her arms. The stars shone with extraordinary brilliancy, and no sounds broke the stillness of the night but the rippling of the waves and the splash of the pieces of ice as they fell into the sea. The colonists, stretched upon the ground in scattered groups, were as motionless as corpses on an abandoned wreck. Sometimes Sergeant Long rose and peered into the night mists, but seeing nothing, he resumed his horizontal position. The bear, looking like a great white snowball, cowered motionless at the very edge of the strip of ice. This night also passed away without any incident to modify the situation. The grey morning dawned in the east, and the sun rose and dispersed the shadows of the night. The lieutenant's first care, as soon as it was light, was to examine the piece of ice. Its perimeter was still more reduced, and, alas, its mean height above the sea-level had sensibly diminished. The waves, quiet as they were, washed over the greater part of it. The summit of the little hill alone was still beyond their reach. Long, too, saw the changes which had taken place during the night, and felt that all hope was gone. Mrs. Barnett joined Lieutenant Hobson, and said to him, "'It will be to-day, then.' "'Yes, madam, and you will keep your promise to Calais.' "'Lieutenant Hobson,' said the lady solemnly, "'have we done all in our power?' "'We have, madam.' "'Then God's will be done.' One last attempt was, however, made during the day. A strong breeze set in from the offing, that is to say, a wind bearing to the southeast, 
the direction in which were situated the nearest of the Aleutian Islands. How far off, no one could say, as without instruments the bearings of the island could not be taken. It was not likely to have drifted far, however, unless under the influence of the current, as it gave no hold to the wind. Still, it was just possible that they might be nearer land than they thought. If only a current, the direction of which it was impossible to ascertain, had taken them nearer to the much-longed-for Aleutian Islands, then, as the wind was bearing down upon those very islands, it might drive the strip of ice before it, if a sail of some kind could be concocted. The ice had still several hours to float, and in several hours the land might come in sight, or, if not the land, some coasting or fishing vessel. A forlorn hope, truly, but it suggested an idea to the lieutenant, which he resolved to carry out. Could not a sail be contrived on the island as on an ordinary raft? There could be no difficulty in that, and when Hobson suggested it to MacNab, he exclaimed, "'You are quite right, sir,' adding to his men, "'bring out all the canvas there is.' Everyone was quite revived by this plan. Slight as was the chance it afforded, and all lent a helping hand, even Calais, who had not yet reminded Mrs. Barnett of her promise. A beam, which had once formed part of the roof of the barracks, was sunk deep into the earth and sand of which the little hill was composed, and firmly fixed with ropes, arranged like shrouds and a stay. A sail, made of all the claws and coverlets still remaining, fastened onto a strong pole for a yard, was hoisted on the mast. This sail, or rather collection of sails, suitably set, swelled in the breeze, and by the wake it left it was evident that the strip of ice was rapidly moving towards the southeast. It was a success, and every one was cheered with newly awakened hope. They were no longer stationary, they were advancing, slowly it was true, but still they were advancing. The carpenter was particularly elated, all eagerly scanned the horizon, and had they been told that no land could be sighted, they would have refused to believe it. So it appeared, however, for the strip of ice floated along the waves for three hours in the centre of an absolutely circular and unbroken horizon. The poor colonists still hoped on. Towards three o'clock the lieutenant took the sergeant aside and said to him, we are advancing at the cost of the solidity and duration of our islet. What do you mean, sir? I mean that the ice is being rapidly fretted away as it moves along. Its speed is hastening, its dissolution, and since we set sail, it has diminished one-third. Are you quite sure? Absolutely certain. The ice is longer and flatter. Look, the sea is not more than ten feet from the hill. It was true, and the result was what might naturally have been expected from the motion of the ice. "'Sergeant,' resumed Hobson, "'do you think we ought to take down our sail?' "'I think,' replied Long, after a moment's reflection, "'that we should consult our comrades. We ought all to share the responsibility of a decision now.' The lieutenant bent his head in assent, and the two returned to their old position on the little hill. Hobson put the case before the whole party. "'The speed we have given to the ice,' he said, "'is causing it to wear away rapidly, "'and will perhaps hasten the inevitable catastrophe by a few hours. 
"'My friends, you must decide whether we shall still go on.' "'Forwards!' all cried with one voice. So it was decided, and, as it turned out, the decision was fraught with consequences of incalculable importance. At six o'clock p.m., Madge rose, and, pointing to a point on the southeast, cried, "'Land!' Everyone started up as if struck by lightning. Land there was indeed on the southeast, twelve miles from the island. More sail, more sail! shouted Hobson. He was understood, and fresh materials were hastily brought. On the shrouds, a sort of studding sail was rigged up of clothes, furs, everything in short that could give hold to the wind. The speed increased as the wind freshened, but the ice was melting everywhere. It trembled beneath the feet of the anxious watchers, and might open at any moment. But they would not think of that. They were buoyed up with hope. Safety was at hand on the land they were rapidly nearing. They shouted, they made signals. They were in a delirium of excitement. At half-past seven the ice was much nearer the land, but it was visibly melting and sinking rapidly. Water was gushing from it, and the waves were washing over it. "'sweeping off the terrified quadrupeds "'before the eyes of the colonists. "'Every instant they expected the whole mass to be engulfed, "'and it was necessary to lighten it like a sinking vessel. "'Every means was tried to check the dissolution. "'The earth and sand were carefully spread about, "'especially at the edges of the ice, "'to protect it from the direct influence of the sunbeams, "'and furs were laid here and there "'as being bad conductors of heat.' but it was of no avail. The lower portion of the ice began to crack, and several fissures opened in the surface. It was now but a question of moments. Night set in, and there was nothing left for the poor colonists to do to quicken the speed of the islet. Some of them tried to paddle about on planks. The coast was still four miles to windward. It was a dark, gloomy night without any moon, and Hobson, whose heroic courage did not even now fail him, shouted, "'A signal, my friends, a signal!' A pile was made of all the remaining combustibles, two or three planks and a beam. It was set fire to, and bright flames soon shot up. But the strip of ice continued to melt and sink. Presently the little hill alone remained above the water, and on it the despairing wretches, with a few animals left alive, huddled together, the bear growling fiercely. The water was still rising, and there was no sign that anyone on land had seen the signal. In less than a quarter of an hour they must all be swallowed up. Could nothing be done to make the ice last longer? In three hours, three short hours, they might reach the land, which was now but three miles to windward. Oh, cried Hobson, if only I could stop the ice from melting, I would give my life to know how. Yes, I would give my life. There is one way, suddenly replied a voice. It was Thomas Black who spoke. The astronomer, who had not opened his lips for so long, and who had long since appeared dead to all that was going on. Yes, he continued, there is one way of checking the dissolution of the ice. There is one way of saving us all. All gathered eagerly round the speaker, and looked at him inquiringly. They thought he must have misheard what he had said. "'Well,' asked Hobson, "'what way do you mean?' "'To the pumps,' replied Black simply. 
Was he mad? Did he take the ice for a sinking vessel, with ten feet of water in the hold? The air-pumps were at hand, together with the air-vessel, which Hobson had been using as a reservoir for drinking water. But of what use could they be? Could they harden the ice which was melting all over? "'He is mad!' exclaimed Long. "'To the pumps!' repeated the astronomer. "'Fill the reservoir with air!' "'Do as he tells you!' cried Mrs. Barnett. The pumps were attached to the reservoir, the cover of which was closed and bolted. The pumps were at once set to work. The air was condensed under the pressure of several atmospheres. Then Black, taking one of the leather pipes connected with the reservoir, and opening the cock, let the condensed air escape, walking round the ice wherever it was melting. Everyone was astonished at the effect produced. Wherever the air was projected by the astronomer, the fissures filled up, and the surface refrozen. Hurrah! Hurrah! shouted all with one voice. It was tiring enough to work the pumps, but there were plenty of volunteers. The edges of the ice were again solidified, as if under the influence of intense cold. "'You have saved us, Mr. Black,' said Lieutenant Hobson. "'Nothing could be more natural,' replied the astronomer quietly. Nothing, in fact, could have been more natural, and the physical effort produced may be described as follows. There were two reasons for the relegation. First, under the pressure of the air, the water vaporized on the surface of the ice produced intense cold, and the compressed air, in expanding, abstracted the heat from the thawed surface, which immediately refroze. Wherever the ice was opening, the cold cemented the edges, so that it gradually regained its original solidity. This went on for several hours, and the colonists, buoyed up by hope, toiled on with unwearying zeal. They were nearing the coast, and when they were about a quarter of a mile from it, the bear plunged into the sea, and swimming to the shore, soon disappeared. A few minutes afterwards, the ice ran aground upon a beach, and the few animals still upon it hurried away in the darkness. The colonists, disembarked and falling on their knees, returned thanks to God for their miraculous deliverance. End of chapter 23 Part 2, Chapter 24 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Chapter 24. Conclusion. It was on the island of Blagini, the last of the Aleutian group, at the extreme south of Bering Sea, that all the colonists of Fort Hope had at last landed, after having traversed 1,800 miles since the breaking up of the ice. They were hospitably received by some Aleutian fishermen, who had hurried to their assistance, and were soon able to communicate with some English agents of the Hudson's Bay Company. After all the details we had given, it is needless to dwell on the courage and energy of the brave little band, which had proved itself worthy of its noble leader. We know how all struggled with their misfortunes, and how patiently they had submitted to the will of God. We have seen Mrs. Barnett cheering every one by her example and sympathy and we know that neither she nor those with her yielded to despair 
when the peninsula on which Fort Hope had been built was converted into a wandering island, when that island became an islet, and the islet a strip of ice, or even when that strip of ice was melting beneath the combined influence of sun and waves. If the scheme of the company was a failure, if the new fort had perished, no one could possibly blame Hobson or his companions, who had gone through such extraordinary and unexpected trials. Of the nineteen persons under the lieutenant's charge, not one was missing, and he had even two new members in his little colony, Kalumaha and Mrs. Barnett's godson, Michael McNabb. Six days after their rescue, the shipwrecked mariners arrived at New Archangel, the capital of Russian America. Here the friends, bound together by so many dangers shared, must part, probably forever. Hobson and his men were to return to Fort Reliance across English America, whilst Mrs. Barnett, accompanied by Kalumaha, who would not leave her, Madge and Thomas Black, intended to go back to Europe via San Francisco and the United States. But whilst they were still all together, the lieutenant, addressing Mrs. Barnett, said with considerable emotion, "'God bless you, madam, for all you have been to us. You have been our comforter, our consoler, the very soul of our little world, and I thank you in the name of all.' Three cheers for Mrs. Barnett greeted this speech, and each soldier begged to shake her by the hand, whilst the women embraced her affectionately. The lieutenant himself had conceived so warm an affection for the lady, who had so long been his friend and counsellor, that he could not bid her good-bye without great emotion. "'Can it be that we shall never meet again?' he exclaimed. "'No, lieutenant,' replied Mrs. Barnett. "'We must, we shall meet again. If you do not come and see me in Europe, I will come back to you at Fort Reliance, or to the new factory you will found some day yet.' On hearing this, Thomas Black, who had regained the use of his tongue since he had landed on terra firma, came forward and said, with an air of the greatest conviction, "'Yes, we shall meet again in thirty-six years. My friends, I miss the eclipse of 1860, but I will not miss that which will take place under exactly similar conditions in the same latitudes in 1896. And therefore I appoint a meeting with you, Lieutenant, and with you, my dear madam, on the confines of the Arctic Ocean, thirty-six years hence. End of chapter 24 And end of part 2 End of the Fur Country by Jules Verne